0: It's so good to be here today to be able to worship God, and we're thankful uh, for those of you who are here, especially those who are visiting. We hope that you uh, uh, find a a warm welcome, and we hope that you will be able uh, to stay and have lunch with us in just a little while so that we might uh, have an opportunity to get to know you a little bit. And I do want to say one more time um, after last weekend that uh, we are so thankful for everyone Who helped and who did so much to make our Arise Spiritual Growth Workshop uh, possible. So many worked so hard, sacrificed so much, and uh, that is not unnoticed. And so we're thankful for you and for everyone, and Lord willing, we look forward to another successful year uh, come 2021. I want you to imagine that you were to in your conversation sometime this week with a friend or a coworker or someone, just bring up the subject of sin. It's hard to imagine, I guess, what the different answers or reactions to that would be. I guess some folks would probably look at you funny. Someone might laugh a little bit and kind of shake their head and roll their eyes. Someone might have uh, maybe a little bit of a different answer about what it is or how powerful it is or whatever. It's hard to know, but I think there's one thing we can say for sure, and that is that in general, the world and man doesn't view sin in the same way that God views sin, and in the same way that the Bible describes sin. Did you know that in the Bible, the word sin, not including its derivatives, is found 446 times? And then there are other words that are synonymous with sin, like the word trespass, that appears 57 times, and transgression 44 times. The Bible has a lot to say about sin and about sinfulness and about the power of sin and about the effects that it has on human beings. For example, in Isaiah chapter 30 and verse number 1, as Isaiah described the people of God, he said, Woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord, who take counsel but not of me, And who devise plans, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. In Hosea chapter 13 and verse 2, again, a prophet speaking of the people of God said, Now they sin more and more. God pled with his people in Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse number 7. I said, surely you will fear me, you will receive instruction so that your dwelling would not be cut off and desire everything for which I punished her. But they rose up early and they corrupted all their doings. And then we have a passage in Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse number 25 where God will, in again describing his children, really we have a passage that is descriptive Of everybody, of all humanity, as they deal with sin. Jeremiah says this We lie down in our shame, and our reproach covers us, for we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers, from our youth even to this day, and we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. The Bible has a lot to say about sin, it even describes different kinds of sin. There are presumptuous sins, like we read about in Numbers chapter 15 and verse 30. There are sins of ignorance that we read about in Leviticus chapter 4 and verse 13. Sins of omission, James 4 and verse 17. Willful sins, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 26. When we think about sin and what the Bible says about sin, how God views sin and how he wants his people to view sin there really is one word that should enter our minds and that is the word hate we live in a highly desensitized culture it's one that has forgotten how to blush like we read about in Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 15 and so for many people in our country and in our world the things that God looks at with disdain are things that people look out with pleasure and the things that God expects to turn our stomachs, and uh, to build up an amount of hatred and resentment within us. These are the things that people generally tend to embrace. And whenever we reach a point where we lose the ability to blush and we become desensitized to what sin really is, then we begin to take sin as something that's not really all that serious. But to the contrary, sin is very serious, it's progressive in nature, First John 5 and verse 16. It blinds us to what it really is, 2 Corinthians 4 and verse number 4. The desire of the devil and the desire of sin is to really make us think that sin isn't actually sin at all. That what is wrong is actually right and what hurts actually brings pleasure. So it is our goal and our job as children of God to understand sin for what it is, And then hate it with every fiber of our being. The passage that was read for us a moment ago, Romans chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. Those two verses are going to stand, I guess, as a theme for our lessons today, this morning and this evening. Because in this chapter and in these two verses, especially verse 2, we have what is described as the law of sin and death. And this verse actually points back to chapter 7 and verse number 5. If you like to mark notes in your Bible, you can mark chapter 7 and verse 5 and verse 6. And you can make a notation of the fact that chapter 7 and verse 5 is elaborated upon in chapter 7, verse 13, through the end of the chapter. And then chapter 7 and verse number 6 is elaborated upon in chapter 8, verse number 1 and following. You see, in chapter 7 and verse number 5, Paul says, For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. And then later in the last part of the chapter, he'll describe the struggle of one who is lost in sin with no recourse. What if it were the case that we were confronted with sin and we were confronted with our guilt and we were confronted with the reality and the consequences of sin, but also we were confronted with the fact that there wasn't anything that we could do about it. No matter how hard we tried and how much we desired to be set free from sin and from pain and from death and from the consequences of sin, there wouldn't be anything at all that could be done. That's Romans 7 verse 13 and following. But Romans 8, verse 1 and following picks up on Romans 7, verse 6. But now we've been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So Paul picks up and says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death is just that. It's the law that says sin equals death. It's the control or the dominion that sin has. Paul says in Romans 7, verse 23 and 24, But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? When we think about sin and when we think about its power and its reality and all of its consequences, it would be hard to find two passages in God's word that summarize all of that better than Romans three verse, or 7, verse 23 and 24. And yet we have this great hope in Romans 8, verse 1 and 2, this law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, which has made us free from the law that says sin equals death and that sin has dominion, and that sin has power, we have been released from that power. Now, this isn't the only chapter in the book of Romans that deals with sin. In fact, it has a great deal to say about it from both of these standpoints that we've alluded to, the positive and the negative. The negative being what sin is and its power and all of its consequences. And the positive being the fact that God has created a way and in which we can be saved and delivered and rescued from the power of sin and all of its consequences. This book of Romans is the entire scheme of man's redemption comprised and compressed into one book. It describes both the horror of sin and the glory of salvation. And our desire today is simply to study what this book has to say about sin for two reasons. Number one, so that our hatred of sin can grow. But number two, so that our appreciation of salvation can grow. Let's begin this morning by looking at what this book has to say about sin from the negative. I want you to turn back with me in your book in your Bible to the book of Romans chapter 1. We're going to spend the most, most of our time in the first 3 or 4 chapters of this book this morning. And here's what I want us to see first of all. Number 1, we need to recognize that sin is everybody's problem. Sometimes when we think about sin or study what the Bible has to say about it, maybe we begin to think something like, well, it's really not that big of a deal to me. I'm I'm much better. These things that we're reading about in the pages of God's Word, these descriptions of people who are completely ungodly, those things don't describe me. That doesn't characterize me. But if we begin to think that way, then we deceive ourselves because the Bible describes sin as a transgression of the law of God in 1 John chapter 3. And it is absolutely true that every soul who lives long enough in this world at some point will transgress transgress or violate the law of God. And that makes sin a reality for every single person. So in the first three chapters of the book of Romans, Paul will deal with this point and he'll lay it out systematically. In chapter 1, he describes the sins of the Gentiles. In chapter 2, he describes the sins of the Jews. But then in chapter 3, he brings it all to a summary, to a conclusion in verse 9 through 19 and again in verse number 23. You see, he doesn't want any person, Jew or Gentile, male or female, young or old, he doesn't want any of us to sit back and say, that person over there struggles with sin, but I don't have a problem with sin. This lesson or these points are not for me. Listen to what he says in Romans 3, beginning in verse number 9. He says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside, they have altogether become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb, with their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God in their eyes. And look at verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What these first three chapters and what this section, verse 9 and following through 19, are all about is this. Our God wants us to understand that there is an accountable soul in this room or in this world who doesn't face the reality of sin. Skin color, social status, money, profession, none of those things matter. All of us must take what the Bible has to say about sin very seriously because the Bible tells us that sin is everyone's problem and it's not an insignificant or some small problem. It's a serious problem and one that we have to come face to face with or we'll never become serious about hating it and about dealing with it. Sin is everyone's problem. But second of all, building on what we've just said, this book also makes crystal clear to us that sin is a very serious problem. Go back to the first chapter and just survey all of the things that the Bible says sin does to a person. First of all, in Romans chapter 1 verse 21 to 23, it says that sin makes a person foolish. Notice what Paul says in Romans 1 verse 21 and look close at the language that he uses. He says, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened, professing themselves to be wise. They became fools. The emphasis of these verses is this, that the Gentiles, that's who we're talking about in context, that they intentionally set their minds against God. You'll notice in the previous verses that Paul describes the fact that God had made himself known to them that they were without excuse because they could see the invisible attributes of God on display in creation, verse number 20. And notice in verse 21, there is no ambiguity here. He says, although they knew God, they knew God, but what did they choose to do? They chose not to glorify him. They chose not to be thankful. And if you're looking for a passage that describes the progression of sin, here is one. They knew God, but they refused to glorify him, and they refused to be thankful. Thanksgiving, of course, is an implication of our dependence upon him. And whenever we get to the point where we refuse to acknowledge God, we refuse to give God the glory that he deserves, and we refuse to thank him for what he gives, then we're following right in the footsteps of these Gentiles. And Paul says that this rejection or this mind being set against God resulted in foolishness. Notice, they became futile or their thinking was empty or useless and their foolish hearts were darkened. And I want you to look at the word foolish in verse 21 and the word fools in verse 22. Would you believe it if I told you that in describing their reasoning as worthless Paul actually uses a word in the Greek New Testament that our English language translates into the word moron. That's what the word is. He says their reasoning was so foolish and their setting themselves against God was so ridiculous and so empty and so vain that they were moronic in how they thought, and how they thought determined how they lived. Sin makes one foolish, but it's also dishonorable. Look at verse 24. He says, therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their own bodies amongst themselves. The word dishonor has to do with treating something shamefully. It has to do with looking at something with disgrace. It has to do with degrading something. Sin is disgraceful and degrading. It's dishonorable, but it's also shameful. Look at chapter 1, verse 27. He says, likewise also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust one for another. Men with men committing that which is, look at the word, shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. The word shameful simply refers to behavior that should embarrass us and cause us to feel disgraced. Again, we live in a world in which it is not... um, It is not right in many people's eyes to talk about something being wrong or to talk about something being shameful or to talk about something being disgraceful. But God says what we need to understand in crystal clear language is that when we commit sin, when we live in sin, that is foolish, that it's dishonorable, that it's shameful, and that it ought to cause us to feel embarrassed and it ought to cause us to feel disgraced. Look at chapter 2 and verse 1 sin is also blind paul in switching uh, switching uh, from the gentiles to the jews now says therefore you are inexcusable o man whoever you are who judge uh, who judge for and whatever you judge another you condemn yourself for you who judge practice the same things in this chapter he begins to contrast the uh, unfair or unrighteous judgment of the jews with the fair or the righteous judgment of the gen- of god rather And the point that he wants them to see in chapter 2, verse number 1 and following, is that they're hypocrites. And the reason that they're hypocrites is because they pass sentence. Literally, that's the idea of judgment. They pass sentence on the Gentiles for committing the sins that are described in the first chapter. And yet Paul says, all the while you're guilty of committing the exact same things. That's because sin is blind hypocrisy is a result of sin because sin blinds us to its true nature and if you think about it that makes a lot of sense the devil doesn't want you to realize that he's the devil because otherwise he wouldn't be able to to uh, convince you to follow him sin doesn't want us to know that it's actually sin because otherwise we wouldn't commit it sin causes us to be blind to what it really is that's why we have such an emphasis in God's Word in passages like 2 Corinthians 13, 5 and 2 Corinthians 4, and verse 4 that explain to us the importance of a constant, honest self evaluation by opening up the mirror that is God's Word and allowing this Word to show us for who and what we truly are so that we don't allow ourselves to be tricked and deceived and blinded into following that which is wrong. How serious is sin? Is foolish, it's dishonorable, it's shameful, it's blind. But go back to chapter 1. Look at verse 24, verse 26, and verse 28. You'll see a common thread between these three verses. Therefore God also gave them up, verse 24. For this reason God gave them up, verse 26. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind, verse 28. Sin is so serious that it causes God literally to give up. And the point of those three passages is this. If a person is bound and determined to be rebellious against God and his will and to continue living in sin, God is not going to force us to do what we don't want to do. He's not going to force us to do what's right if we choose to do what's wrong. And so when he says God gave them up, essentially what it means is that God let them go. And God said, if this is your choice and this is what you're determined to do, then I'm going to let you do it. That's how serious sin is. Look also at chapter 1, verse 17. We don't have time to look at all of these passages, but we do want to look at some of them. When we talk about the serious nature of sin, when we talk about uh, what sin brings and what the results of it are, we need to recognize that sin is something that is worthy of the wrath of God. In chapter 1, verse 17 and 18, as Paul begins to build on his purpose statement for the book, he says, for in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed uh, as it is, uh, from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And then here's our passage. For he says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Let's look at these two passages just for a moment. First of all, notice at the beginning of verse number 18 that Paul uses the word for, and it has the idea of because. What's the because? That points back to verse 16 and 17. In verse 16 and 17, he talks about the gospel and how it's God's power to save and how it is this system of faith that produces faith in those who believe. The gospel is the way that God makes people right with him. And why is it so important that we talk about a system in which God makes people right with him? Because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. That's the reason, verse number 18. But notice something else about what he says. Look at the word revealed. Notice in verse 17 and in verse 18, you see the word revealed in both of these passages. And this word is a word that is ongoing. It describes continual action. So in verse 17, we have the righteousness of God that is on continual display. But we also, in verse number 18, have the wrath of God that is on continual display. It's not something that's going to come only in the future. It's something that is a reality right now. God's wrath, just like God's righteousness, is an ever-existing reality. Now that causes us to stop and wonder, how can the wrath of God be an ever-existing reality? And here's why. Here's how. Because, number one, it causes us to stop and look at the cross of Jesus Christ and how the wrath of God is satisfied in the sacrifice made on the cross. We'll talk about that tonight. Also, when we see the wrath of God, we, we see it rather when we look at the consequences of, dis, of sin that are on display every day in this world. One interesting thing to do as you're studying the book of Romans is to read and notice how many times the word death or one of its derivatives is used. Ultimately, the reason that sin is so serious is because it produces death Romans 5 verse 12, whereas by one man's sin entered into the world and death by sin. Romans 6 verse 23, the wages of sin is death. There are a number of consequences of sin that are on display that we see in this this world every day. But death is one of them. How do we see the wrath of God on continual display? We see it when we see the cross and how it satisfied his wrath. We see it when we see the consequences of sin in this world on display on a daily basis. We see it when we open up God's word and we look at what's coming on the day of judgment. Paul describes in Second Thessalonians chapter one verses seven to nine what's going to happen on the judgment day for those whose life is uh, whose life is sinful. He says, to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who know not God and who obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. He describes in those passages a situation in which those whose lives are spent in sin are going to spend an eternity separated from God, separated from Christ, and separated from the glory of the power of God. How serious is sin? The wrath of God, Paul says, is on display now. It is an ever-existing reality. We see it when we look at the cross. We see it when we look at the consequences of sin. We see it when we look to what's coming on the day of judgment. And in this book that we're studying this morning, the book of Romans, Paul will elaborate on this wrath of God on a number of occasions as he talks about death that comes in Romans chapter 5 and everything that is lost because of sin in that chapter But he also talks about death and sin from a different standpoint. Look at Romans 6 and verse 1. As Paul talks about sin and death, he also tells us that as a Christian, my responsibility is to be dead to sin. He says, um, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Read through the book, or excuse me, through the sixth chapter of Romans, and you'll notice that the Apostle Paul mentions something about death or dying in almost every passage of this chapter. And the reason is because in this chapter, what he wants us to understand is that the wrath of God and the consequences of sin and the condemnation, the death sentence, that is a result of sin. That because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary, whenever I submit myself to the will of God and become obedient to the gospel's plan of salvation, then the reality for me then is not I'm dead because of sin, but that sin is dead to me. Or rather, I should say, I am dead to sin. And he goes on in this chapter, and he talks about how sin was a tyrant that ruled over us, but not anymore because we've been set free. He goes on in this chapter, and he talks about how in the past, we used our bodies in service to sin, but not anymore because we've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And so therefore, our body, our life is spent not in serving sin, but rather in serving God and in serving righteousness. And that brings us right back to where we began this morning in Romans 8, verse 1 and 2. Romans 7, 5, For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. And then he elaborates on it in chapter 7, verse 13 to 25. And then in Romans 8, in verse number 2, he simply describes the law of sin and death the dominion of sin, the consequences of sin, death that results because of sin. And we need to stop and we need to pause and we need to think very carefully and very clearly about those principles that are elaborated upon not just in these chapters, not just in this book, but in the entirety of the Word of God. Because sin is a terrible thing. Sin is not something that's to be taken lightly. It's not something that's to be laughed at. It's not something that's to be shrugged off. It is a very, very serious thing to consider. Someone said, I think it was uh, Ken Hope, that every sin, no matter how small or how insignificant it may seem in our eyes, is a scandal in heaven. And that's true. Every sin is a problem because every sin is a No matter how small it may seem to me, the result of it is death and pain and separation. But then there's the positive. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. That's what we're going to talk about this evening. This morning the Lord's invitation is offered and it may be as you contemplate sin and what the Bible says about it and you contemplate your own life. Perhaps it's the case that you're lost in sin, you're living in sin because you've not yet rendered gospel obedience, you've not yet been washed in the blood of Christ Jesus. The Bible says that God's desire is for all people to come uh, to repentance, Second Peter 3 and verse 9. God doesn't want anyone, God doesn't want anyone to know the full measure of his wrath. That will undoubtedly be unveiled on the day of judgment. But rather, God's desire is that all be saved, that all be washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? John 8 and verse 24. Are you willing to repent of your sins? Luke 13, verse 3 and 5. And confess your faith in Christ Jesus? Romans 10, verse 9 and 10. Are you willing to be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins? Acts 2 and verse number 38. If you're ready to do that this morning, then we stand ready and willing to help you. Maybe this morning, though, you're a Christian, and as you think about your life and you think about sin, you recognize that sin has begun slowly to creep its way back into your life, and the consequences of sin are an ever-present reality. You need to change. You need to make that right. And if we can help you to do it, it would be our privilege and our honor. Please come and let the need be known while we stand and sing the invitation song that's been selected.